Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. On the show this week, BP, one year after the Macondo well disaster, as well as the company's recent Russian dilemmas, we talked to one of the city's industry analysts about the company's future. The head of ExxonMobil has spoken out about BP, nuclear power and the Gulf. We look at what's prompted the comments. And energy companies are going to the High Court in the UK over solar subsidies. Are the government plans undermining investment in renewables? You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start today with BP. Today is also the anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. So naturally, there's a lot of attention on the company. One year on, BP is still standing, but the costs of the cleanup and the compensation bills may be significantly higher than the $40 billion the company has so far set aside. The company has also been embroiled in a dispute in Russia over plans to team up with Rosneft, the state oil champion. So where does BP go from here? Joining us on the line is Alistair Syme, oil and gas analyst at Citigroup. Um, Alistair, BP seems constantly in the news at the moment. Um, what's your assessment just of the company, where we are today, given the accident last year? Um, you know, how, how robust are they financially? I think they're pretty robust financially, Sylvia. I mean, they, you know, certainly they were able to, to weather a pretty major credit crisis through the middle of last year through a combination of, of uh, cash flow and asset sales. Um, but I think I think where they're at today is trying to redefine the strategy in, in a in a period of, of um, you know still relative uncertainty and, and probably over reliance on on some key asset positions that are no longer functioning maybe as optim- optimally as they hoped. And, and you mean they're the Gulf of Mexico because that was that was the sort of principal source of growth or, or focus of, of growth I it guess was, before it the was accident. One of them. It was one of them. I think if you look at the growth of the company this time last year, it was premised on about 40% of it coming out of the Deepwater Gulf and about another third coming out of U.S. onshore gas. Um, you know, clearly the Gulf, I think there's doubts whether it can operate at the same level of efficiency in a, in a tighter regulatory environment. Uh, and U.S. gas has arguably also taken a back, backseat over the last year given the, the, the low gas price in that country. So two of the three legs of the company's growth are, are probably in a worse off position than they were this time last year. So, so what's your view then of, of what's been going on in Russia? I mean, just, just to cap for, recap for some listeners here, they, uh, they've agreed or proposed a sort of $16 billion share swap with Rosneft and also an Arctic alliance, um, but that's irritated the, uh, their partners in their current joint venture, TNKBP. Um, what, what's your sense of, of this and, and how worried are you um, as an analyst who covers BP about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, R- Russia from an oil and gas company perspective is a pretty important country. It's the, the biggest oil and gas resource holder in the world. So you can understand the temptation for, for you know, companies to, to be greater exposed. Um, you know, what I, I guess we've learned over the, over the last few weeks is that the, the risk in Russia is also significantly great. Um, and with the Rosneft deal, if, if that had completed and, and the South Kara Sea exploration deal they were trying to do at the same time, you were talking about a company that could have had up to about 15% of its capital in that country. Um, and
and and clearly, you know, or, or politically, um, you know, it, it's a, it's an uncertain framework, and, and maybe some of the expectations we had about how things operate have, have not worked the, that way over the last few weeks. And and what did you make of, of Bob Dudley, the new chief executive's um, strategy presentation in February? Uh, I mean, his his big theme there seemed to be, you know, value over volume. So, you know, valuable barrels of oil and gas, I guess, rather than lots of them. Um, it, it, it it was fine. I mean, it was it was it was sensible nuts and bolts. I mean, I, mean, I think the big strategic shift the company has really done, and, and I think they said it at the sidelines of that presentation was a greater focus on exploration. You know, if you look, they've they've essentially over the last 12 months sold $20 billion of assets, most of them marginal or mature asset positions, uh, and they have bought or in the process of trying to buy about $20 billion of, of what I would class as frontier exploration plays in Brazil, India, and, and you know, if it ever completes Russia. Um, and that, that's a quite a big strategic shift. I mean, the company's trying to back its core competency around exploration, uh, I guess the downside for investors is that that's quite a long lead time strategy. It's very difficult to judge exploration success at this point in time. And you know, in the interim, the reality is the growth probably looks quite anemic. Uh, there seems to be some some pressure on on capex rising, and I think you know returns or profitability are probably under a bit of relative pressure. And from your perspective, I mean, the share price um, is, is still. Are significantly lower than it was, um, you know, this time last year before the accident. Um, what, what's been the main? What's been sort of undermining the shares from your perspective the most? Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you consider versus what other global oil majors have done over the last twelve months, and BP has probably lost about eighty billion dollars of, of relative market value. Uh, it's a big number, um, and the sort of three buckets for that cost. Um, you know, roughly twenty odd billion goes to to uh, you know do remediation and clean up in the Gulf and, and to pay fines and penalties. And the other $60 billion relates partly to what I would say is the intangible costs of the spill, which is the, the need for this company to, to alter its, its strategic direction, which I think has had a financial impact. Uh, and then, you know, I think amongst all that as well, there is a little bit of value in there for investors. We've, we've probably overshot and, and I think um, you know. I think there is some momentum to, to carry these shares back above five five pounds. Um, and then just just finally, um, I mean, I was speaking to one person who sort of made the point that the the breakup value of, of the company is currently still higher than its going concern values. Is that right from your own calculations? I, I wouldn't agree with that assessment. No. But you think you think the price the shares might have been oversold a little bit, and and you think they should be over five pounds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've got a 5.25p price objective, and I, I think that kind of makes sense against the, the medium-term financial outlook I think this company can now deliver. Um, so I think we have overshot a bit to the downside, yeah. Thank you very much, um, for Alistair Syme, for coming on, and hopefully we can have you on again uh, to talk about BP and other oil companies. Thank you. Um, from one energy dine to another, the chief executive of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson, visited the FT on Tuesday to meet with senior editors. We asked him about nuclear power, the Middle East and the Gulf of Mexico. David Blair, our energy correspondent, is here to tell us more. Um, now, David, Mr. Tillerson was quite outspoken about BP's handling of the crisis um, last summer from a technical perspective, uh, but he also said um, he was concerned about any suggestions that the industry has a systemic problem when it comes to safety. Um, I just wonder if you could expand on, on what he said on that particular point. 
Yes, he pointed out that the industry has drilled 14,000 deep water wells without incident before the disaster in the Gulf of Mexico last year. And his fear is that BP's actions have done a disservice. That was the expression he used to all the people in the industry who've conducted these operations and drilled these wells without incident. He thinks that the broader damage uh, that BP have inflicted is on the whole oil and gas industry. And, and I guess one of the interesting things you also said is, is that if you're, if you're in the petroleum industry, you're a sort of risk manager first um, and a fine of oil and gas second. Yes. Uh, he says that ExxonMobil have successfully inculcated that culture throughout their entire company, um, really uh, as a result of the Exxon Valdez disaster back in the late 1980s. So he believes that first and foremost, managing risk is your key priority. And only after that do you become concerned about drilling wells successfully and getting oil and gas out of the ground. And his central criticism of BP is that unlike ExxonMobil, they didn't inculcate that culture among all their employees and they paid the price accordingly. And his sense of injustice is that he believes that his company and others in the industry are also paying that price by association. Um, he, he was also, um, he had some interesting views on, on nuclear power. Um, this is on, on the back of the um, disaster of Fukushima in, in Japan. Um, I think we asked him uh, whether he thought nuclear power's share of future energy supply would drop um, as a result of the, of the accident and also given you know government responses around the world to uh, suspend um, new bills. And, and what did he say about that? His view is very clear. He thinks that nuclear power will have roughly the same proportion of the global energy mix in 25 to 30 years as it does today, because it's simply too important for policymakers to allow it to shrink. Um, the benefits of nuclear power, in his view, are so overwhelming, and it's so important to press ahead with it, that policymakers simply won't be diverted from that, um, even though Japan suffered that disaster. So he sees it essentially as a problem of public relations, of maintaining public consent for nuclear power rather than a technical issue. It's very much, as he puts it, uh, an issue of public education. Now, it's worth just making one point. Um, when he spoke earlier about BP, he's, of course, speaking as one of BP's principal competitors, uh, not only in his uh, home market in the US, but also globally. Uh, so he's not exactly a disinterested or neutral observer when he talks about BP in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's important to make that point. However, when he talks about nuclear power, it would, of course, be in his commercial interests for nuclear power to shrink as part of the global energy mix, because then his company could step into the breach and supply more gas, for example, to replace it. Um, so the fact that he thinks that won't happen and that his calculation is that nuclear power will remain a constant, uh, uh, the, the proportion of energy generated by nuclear power will remain constant, is a striking observation because it's exactly the opposite of his own commercial interest. And, and finally, um, he had some views on, on the recent unrest in the Middle East, um, where obviously Exxon has a lot invested in the Middle East. Um, was, was he sanguine or was he slightly worried about it? Uh, he was pretty relaxed. Um, Exxon has uh, key investments in Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, where they've invested $16 billion in natural gas projects, uh, Iraq, uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, Egypt, where they've got downstream operations, Libya, where they had an exploration operation. So they've got a huge amount at stake in the region. Uh, his belief is that the political events that we've seen there uh, do not uh, impose any great burden on his company. They have not reviewed any of their investment projects or put anything on hold because of any of those events. And he sees it um, very much as being just another field where risk has to be managed. 
uh, and they've been doing that successfully for many decades. Um, he doesn't believe that the political events that we've seen recently in the Middle East are qualitatively different from any previous events of that kind. And he thinks it can all just be managed, uh, specifically on Saudi Arabia. Um, he has no doubts about the stability of Saudi Arabia. Uh, he believes the government is firmly in control and that it commands the support of most of the Saudi population. Um, it, many people might dispute these observations, uh, but in a sense, it doesn't matter whether he's right or whether he's wrong. What matters is that this is his genuine belief and that billions of dollars of investment decisions are safe because of that. All right. Thanks very much. Um, let's move on to our next item. Um, is solar energy being undermined by government plans in the UK? Seven companies certainly seem to think so and are taking their case to the High Court. Um, now, staying with you, David, what's the government proposed that has prompted this court action? Well, the government's got a big problem uh, because they devised a subsidy system for solar power, which uh, was based on a whole series of assumptions that turned out to be wrong. Um, they assumed that the returns for people uh, installing solar power arrays in Britain would be about 5% a year. But the cost of installing these arrays has since fallen dramatically. So the returns are now more like 12% a year, which makes them commercially attractive. Why, is, why have the costs fallen? Um, they've fallen simply because the technology has moved on. Um, the supply chain has improved. Uh, economies of scale have come into play. Uh, and so in a very short space of time, particularly when it comes to photo photovoltaic solar power arrays, you can install them much more cheaply than you once could. Um, so suddenly they're commercially a great deal more viable than they previously were. And lots of companies have come up with really quite ambitious schemes uh, to build big solar arrays, particularly in the southwest of England. Now, on the face of it, this would all be very good news. Uh, however, the problem is that these big schemes are soaking up an awful lot of the money that the government set aside for the feed-in tariffs. And that money was limited um, at £400 million by 2014-15. And then in the last uh, comprehensive spending review, it was cut by 10% to £360 million. So they've got a big problem. Their money is being used up at a much faster rate than they anticipated. And their answer to that problem is to say, we will give much reduced subsidies to any solar array above a threshold of 50 kilowatts. And, and what are the chances of these companies... Um you know, fighting this in the courts? They have decided that they will fight it in the courts. Um, they filed their particulars of claim. Um, they say that the decision uh, is illegal or unlawful because uh, the, the department had previously given assurances that if it was going to review this policy, it would do so over a period of 12 months and then the, any changes would only come into effect in 2013. In fact, they reviewed the policy in the space of about six weeks. And the policy changes that they're proposing would come into effect from the 1st of August. So their argument is that assurances given by the government have been broken. Um, and the companies tell me that the advice they've been given is that they do have a strong case. Um, the government now has 21 days to respond to this action. Again, thanks very much, David. And finally, Kieran Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Um, Kieran, what's been going on in terms of the discussions online? Uh, we've obviously had uh, quite a lot on BP. It's one year on from the oil spill and they've also had their AGM, as you mentioned earlier. Um, we've had a, a very interesting post uh, from Sheila McNulty, uh, our reporter over in Houston, who was pointing out that business for the large oil operators over in the Gulf of Mexico is, has almost now returned to normal. I mean, we're seeing permits start to be issued once more. Um, drilling has started to come back online. And if you look at their, their forward assumptions, 
tensions. They, they really are looking at the Gulf of Mexico as they would have done two years ago. Um, so despite the complaints that we might have from the likes of Rex Tillerson and other companies uh, saying that uh, the government isn't moving quickly enough getting the Gulf of Mexico back on stream, Sheila was pointing out that actually business is returning very quickly to normal. Uh, we also had one year on, as we say, from, um, from the Macondo explosion in the beginning of that oil spill, we had Michael Bromwich, who's the uh, chief regulator in the US of offshore oil drilling. He was answering our uh, readers' questions on the weekly readers' Q&A session. And one of the interesting things he said is that the new rules and tightened regulations that the US have brought in haven't actually affected oil production, so quite similar to what she was finding. Um, but we did have, and this is the uh, value of having well-informed readers, one of our readers pointed out that in the past, uh, Mr. Bromwich has actually admitted that he can't say with any great deal of certainty what the output levels are, and there are problems with with the data on that. So uh, although it might be a politically convenient message for him to say, look, output hasn't been affected, our rules are, uh, our rules are working well without uh, clamping down on business there, um, it, it turns out that actually the data might be a lot less certain than that. He also took time to rebut suggestions that he was under political or corporate pressure to speed up drilling and thinking particularly of political pressure because uh, if if more permits are uh, allowed to be issued, uh, the theory is that more oil comes on stream, the oil price starts to fall and uh, petrol prices, gas prices in the States start to fall and that really is what uh, Barack Obama could live or die by in his re uh, in his re-election campaign. Um, we also have uh, had a very interesting uh, post about uh, comments from the Saudi Arabian oil minister Ali Naimi who claimed that the oil market was oversupplied uh, which seems a very strange claim to make when the oil price is still over $120 a barrel when we've had Libya going off stream and various other squeezes in that market um, and we we pointed out that really we, we couldn't figure out where the oversupplies were coming from. I mean, Saudi Arabia has actually cut back on the amount of uh, on the amount of their output. Um, and a reader says uh, wrote in to say it reminded him of what you, what was happening in Texas uh, a few years ago when uh, they kept saying that there was a lot of output. They kept cutting back, and gradually people realised they weren't cutting back because the demand wasn't there. They were cutting back because the oil had begun to run out. And so we'll see if that's true of Saudi Arabia as well. And, and what have we got coming up as a Q&A next week? So uh, this Friday we, are, we have Steve Cunningham and Cameron O'Reilly there at the top of a company called Landis & Gear. They make smart meters, which are these fantastic devices that uh, consumers are going to soon be able to fit into their homes, which will tell them how much electricity they're using, when the cheapest times to use that will be. And the idea is to help consumers cut back on the uh, amount of power they use. Uh, so it's an energy-saving thing as well as a cost management system. Um, and I talked to Steve Cunningham, who is their uh, UK and Ireland chief executive earlier, and he was talking about the importance of making sure that consumers remain confident about the technology and don't feel that somehow their data privacy is being breached. I suppose the, the key here is that consent is absolutely critical in making smart work. And, and it's critical because without consumers understanding the role of smart and really understanding what both smart meters and smart grids as a whole will uh, do as part of ensuring that their, their energy supply can remain affordable, uh, becomes cleaner, becomes more sustainable, then they won't engage with the process. And, t and smart metering, smart grid will become just more, one more technology exercise. Um, thanks very much, Kieran. And if you'd like to have your say, log on and post a comment on Energy Source.
And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank David Blair and Kieran Stacey in the studio and Alistair Syme from Citigroup. Energy Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. Energy Weekly will return in two weeks. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.